From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazon. Before we start the program, we at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa want to extend our deepest sympathy to the grieving families and friends of those who perished in the tragic crash of a Ukrainian airline near Tehran that killed all 176 people aboard. This week, we spend the hour discussing the recent military escalation between Iran and the United States. The tensions between the two countries entered a dangerous phase when, on January 3rd, the U.S. assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force, in a drone strike at Baghdad International Airport. The assassination had been ordered by Donald Trump. The killing of Qasem Soleimani put in motion a series of events that many people feared may lead to another devastating war in the Middle East. But for now, there seems to be a worldwide sigh of relief as the U.S. and Iran both appear to signal a desire to avoid further conflict. So how did it all begin? Why did the U.S. decide to assassinate Soleimani? And what are the ramifications of this move on Iranian domestic and regional policies, as well as the future of any possible negotiations between the U.S. and Iran? To explore these issues, Shahram Agamir spoke with Muhammad Ali Kadivar, an assistant professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College, whose work contributes to political and comparative historical sociology by exploring the interactions between protest movements and democratization. And Mansour Farhang, professor emeritus of international relations at Bennington College, who served as the Islamic Republic of Iran's first ambassador to the UN from 1979 to 1980, stepping down in protest during the Iran hostage crisis of 1979. Attention in the U.S.-Iran relations is nothing new. The two countries have been at loggerheads ever since 1979 takeover of the U.S. Embassy by a group of students. Having that backdrop in mind, if we decide not to go that far back into the history, what explains the recent escalation of tensions uh, between the two states? We should begin with the observation that in the 20th century, there were four revolutions in Russia, China, Cuba, and Iran. Even though these revolutions were vastly different in terms of uh, their ideology, and their programs for domestic development, but they had one thing in common, and that was that their message had to be exported, that export of the revolution had priority for all countries in the beginning. The other three came to the conclusion that revolution is not a commodity and it cannot be exported, and they put an end to it after paying heavy costs for it. Iran is still continuing the project, and th- which means they reject the idea of nationalism, as Khomeini said over and over, that is transnationalism and export of the revolution is the priority of the Iranian foreign policy. What does that mean in the Middle East? It means challenging the presence of the United States militarily, politically in the region, challenging the legitimacy of the state of Israel, 
and challenging and questioning the connection or relationship between the United States and various Arab countries, economically or militarily. So therefore, once Iran begins with this foreign policy orientation in the region, and it's called Iran is regarded as the mother country, Ummul Gharo, as they called it, conflict between the United States and the states of the region and the United States, which remains at least the hegemonic power of the, of the region, is inevitable. However, in between the United States and Iran, due to complexity of international relations over the past 40 years, a number of times in Afghanistan against Saddam Hussein's attack against Kuwait and overthrow of Saddam Hussein and fighting against Daesh, the United States and Iran had convergence of interest and they viewed each other tactically that for the present time, it's useful to work with the United States. However, this cooperation is completely unwritten and unacknowledged, but the reality is very evident for anybody who's interested in looking at the facts. Now that the common enemy seems to be defeated, that is, the Daesh is gone, competition yeah. in Iraq has intensified. Who will determine, who will be the influential or hegemonic power in the evolution of the Iraqi political order? This is the conflict between the United, the United States has invested in Iraq over the past 17 years, and suddenly Iran seems to have the upper hand in influencing politics of Iraq. That is the, the, the present phase of the conflict. The conflict between the United States and Iran have, has been going on over the past 40 years. Now we are facing a more dangerous phase between the two, and it has to do with Iraq, but it's not limited to Iraq, it's regional, but focused on Iraq at the present time concerning the nature and development of the Iraqi political world. So Ali Kadivar, would you like to add anything to what Mansoor Farhang just said? Sure, I think that this last episode has started when uh, United States violated the JCPOA, or as the Westerners would like to frame it, the Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal. I think that's when this episode of escalation started, and the last two peaks of this episode was uh, the American assassination of uh, General Soleimani and then Iran's retaliatory attack to two uh, Iraqi bases that were place uh, of uh, American troops in Iraq. The assassination of General Qasem Soleimani of Iran by the United States, as you mentioned, has been described as an unprecedented escalation in the 40-year standoff between the two countries. This is the description given to us by some scholars and analysts. Is this statement accurate, given the fact that in 1988, uh, we witnessed an Iran airplane was shot down by the US military? A few months earlier, the US Navy had destroyed two oil platforms and either sank or crippled six Iranian ships in, in Persian Gulf in the same year. Those events occurred towards the end of the eight-year Iran-Iraq war during what was described as the oil tanker phase of the war. Given that, is assassination of General Soleimani a significant episode in this tumultuous relations between the two countries? And why did the U.S. government decide to assassinate General Soleimani? Why now? Ali, would you like to 
chime in on that? Sure, I think this is definitely a significant episode. You are right to mention the previous events when the confrontation escalated, but I think we we got very close to to the brink of the war and it has slowed down after Iran's attack because the, both parties said we are, they're going to step down a little bit. But perhaps one difference is that at the time of the previous incidents, Iran did not have the strong allies of this militias in the region that through which Iran still can still retaliate against the United States. So I think that direct perhaps Iran is not going to take direct action, but I think the direct uh, conflict is still going to continue between the two countries. Mansour Fahang, more on that. Iran's decision to retaliate, Iran was promising what they called, if I'm not mistaken, a harsh revenge against the United States. What we witnessed on Monday, was that anything close to a harsh revenge? You see, we have to contextualize this particular phase of the confrontation between the two. Following the heavy sanctions imposed on Iran, it was extremely difficult for Iran to cope with the consequences of the sanctions, particularly economically speaking. Iran was exporting over two and a half million barrels of oil a day, and suddenly it was reduced to less than 300 or 400 barrels a day. And given the nature of the Iranian economy, it was intolerable. So Iran's response was to create insecurity in the region. By doing insecurity, that is the insecurity to the extent that it will affect the European states, the Middle Eastern states, and they could collectively put pressure on the United States in order to reconsider the idea of sanctions. The latest act of Iran, which was indirect in pressuring the United States, was attack on the embassy. At some point in the beginning, the United States and Iran had deniability. They could deny that they were involved in shipping, hitting the oil tankers or the oil facilities of Saudi Arabia and so forth. But the strategy was to create the kind of insecurity and uh, fear that would concern a variety of countries in Europe as well as in, in, in the region. So it reached a point that the United States felt necessary to react to respond to the Iranian-supported uh, attack on American embassy in Baghdad. So the Iranian, the American officials presented President Trump a number of options in regard to retaliation. Based on what we read in the media, assassination of Soleimani was one option, and they were surprised. The experts were surprised that Trump chose. Why Trump chose this particular option in response to Iran, it's really, it has become a question of psychoanalyzing this man, why he felt so comfortable and identified with the idea of an extracurricular assassination of a leader. This doesn't mean that one is supporting Iran or one is uh, sympathizing with Soleimani, not at all. It was an illegal act if the United States had evidence with respect to Soleimani or other Iranian officials committing crimes against humanity, they could go to international criminal court. They could pursue them legally, and that would have been far more effective politically and psychologically than engaging in extrajudicial you know, assassination. As a result, it has intensified and made the confrontation more dangerous, which really says something about the nature of 
the political order that is the White House decision-making as well as Mr. Khamenei's decision-making, which both of them have become subject for psychoanalysts and psychologists in order to understand what is going on as distinguished from paying attention to the relationship of these decisions to the national interest of each country or to order and security in the Middle East region. Let's shift over to the key figure in this whole episode, and that is Mr. Qasem Soleimani. Since his assassination, the narratives on Mr. Soleimani's life and work they seem to lack a solid analysis in the sense that he was a top commander in the Islamic uh, Republic Revolutionary Guards. Depending on the analyst's point of view on the regional front, his supporters focus on Mr. Soleimani's role in defeating the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And they go as far as calling him Iranian Che Guevara. Iranian President Rouhani just recently compared his assassination to the toppling of Dr. Muhammad Mossadegh in 1953 through a British-U.S. coup. His opponents in the U.S. focus on his involvement in the killing of the U.S. military forces in Iraq. I sort of pose this question to the both of you. What is missing from such narratives? Yeah, so I think Soleimani has had a kind of complex legacy. So he's been the main executor of Iran's foreign policy in the region and the foreign policy that more than anyone else has been determined by Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. I mean, part of it, as was mentioned by the other guests, is as a result of the revolutionary ideology of the Islamic Republic. But I think another part of it is just the imperatives of Iran's geopolitics. And because of that, we see some similarities between the Islamic Republic's foreign policy and Pahlavi foreign policy under monarchy. For example, Pahlavi also made alliances with Kurds in, in Iraq or promoted Shias in Lebanon or sent troops in Oman to suppress an insurgency against the monarchy in, in Oman at the time. So there are these commonalities, and I think Soleimani has acted on some of these commonalities. So one of the roles that Iran has played in the region is to give protection and security to the Shia communities that has been discriminated against or felt discriminated against. Iran helped these communities to organize, arm them to fight with the main power in their country, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in Yemen. But how did they do that? The kind of organization that they uh, promoted in this community, and it's also a kind of organization they're training for armed insurgency. It's been a kind of top-down authoritarian organization that has had consequences both for these communities and the communities around them. Very similar process happened in Iran. In Iran, during Iran-Iraq war also, the Revolutionary Guards started another force next to them as Basij. Basically, they trained and organize ordinary Iranians and send them to the fronts of war with Iraq. This passages during Iran-Iraq war played a patriotic role, played an important part in the battlefield. But when the war ended, passages started more and more to act as a guardian of the authoritarian order in Iran to play the role of a force that is for surveillance of the Iranian communities to police Iranians and so on. So Iran also trained and organized Shias in Iraq when the ISIS rose. And this uh, 
groups that are known as Hashda Shabi or the Popular Mobilization Unit fought the ISIS, but they have been also involved in uh, persecuting Sunnis. There are reports of this in by various human rights groups such as Human Rights Watch, or there are also such uh, persecutory uh, practices by these groups that are trained and supported by Iran are also mentioned in the cables by Min Iran's Ministry of Intelligence in Iran that were revealed recently and Intercept published them. It's interesting that even within Iran's intelligence est establishment, there are critical views about the tactics of, that Soleimani used in Iraq and also the actions that these groups have done. Iraqis also hold Iran responsible for these actions of the groups and also in recent protests that happened in Iraq. The ongoing, the ongoing protest. So one of the major demands of the protest is they want an end to Iran's influence in Iraqi politics. Iran has had a big influence in both training these groups and also in Iraq, Iraq's institutional politics. Who is the prime minister? Who is going to be in the cabinet? When the, what kind of policies Iraqi government is going to have? And Soleimani has been the main conveyor of Iran's messages in these regards. Again, the cables has interesting information about how Soleimani has kind of given order, for example, to the to the Iraqi government about for certain actions that Iran has been wanting from them. And then uh, both Iraqi government that is backed by Iran and some of these Shia militias have been held responsible by Iraqi protesters for shooting at protesters and killing protesters. And it is interesting to know that these protesters are actually majority Shia. So it is not at this point that only Sunnis are against or opposing Iran's influence in Iraq. At least a big portion of the Shia communities that are, has been active in this protest has been also holding Iran's responsible for certain repressive measures by the government and by the militias. And I also want to add to that it's correct that Iran has played an important role in defeating ISIS in Syria. But Iran has been backing the most brutal dictatorship in the region, the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad, known as the butcher of the Middle East. I mean, Iran has been opposing Israel, for example, for its crimes against Palestinians. But I don't really know what is it that Assad has done that Israel has not done. How can, we, how can Iran oppose Israeli oppression but be supportive of Assad's oppression? And it is true, again, that Saudi Arabia, Turkey, UAE, they have provided support for the jihadists in Syria. But this doesn't exonerate Assad from his war crimes, his brutal tactics and practices against the populations, and also Iran's involvement for promoting Assad, for supporting Assad, and being part of a civil war that has dislocated millions of people, hundreds, thousands of People have died and there are still refugees that are suffering and, uh, and people who are now suffering from the dictatorship of Assad that has been resurrected in Syria. Mansour Fahang, what would you like to add to that? You see, both the United States and Iran are exaggerating importance of Qasem Soleimani for internal political as well as regional reasons. He was definitely a player. And we don't know exactly, we don't have information to say the effectiveness of a leader, but there is no question in my mind that he could be replaced by someone else who, so long as it is, the policy is supported by Tehran, 
it will continue to do the same. And the circumstances in the region and the role of the United States and the rest will influence the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of what they do. Uh, and in the United States, they want to examine said they really assassinated someone who, play, who was a key player in terms of security concerns of the United States. This is absurd. And even more absurd is Rouhani's claim comparing Soleimani with Mossadegh. Soleimani is a soldier. He has murdered many Iranians. He has led the kind of violent action whose uh, the victims were Sunnis or dissident Iranians. Mossadegh was a liberal nationalist committed to the national interest of Iran. Moreover, Rouhani ought to be shameful because it was Ayatollah Khomeini who described overthrow of Mossadegh as being slapped by God. And Ayatollah Khashani, a darling of the president, received money from Central Intelligence Agency to work against Mossadegh. So did Ayatollah Behbahani. So Rouhani has become another pathological lawyer in his claims. So in comparing a soldier who is following order and killing whoever is opposed to them with Mohammad Mossadegh, the leader of the most progressive and democratic movement in the history of Iran, is an is utter absurdity. Moreover, when we say the role of the Shi'is, Soleimani and the rest, in defeating in ISIS in Syria or in Iraq, we have to understand that the major work against ISIS was done both Syria and in Iraq by the air power of Russia and the United States. They systematically bombed the residential areas under the control of ISIS. No wonder in the absolutely unprecedented tragedy in the history of the region, more than 10 million human beings have become homeless, half of them inside the country and the other half fleeing the country going you know, outside. Over 500,000 people were killed. There is no question that Iranians and Hezbollahis and Iraqis and Pakistanis and uh, the soldiers from Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth played a role on, on the ground force, but without the air power of the United States and Russia, so systematic and so indiscriminate in attacking the Daesh, they would not have been able to succeed in, at all. And the elevating you know, Soleimani's you know, position might serve the domestic propagandistic purposes of the regime, both in the United States and in Iran, but it really doesn't have much to do with the, with the realities of what happened in the region during the struggle against uh, ISIS. To be clear, uh, Russian air raids were not limited to ISIS, the Islamic State positions. The major battle started in Aleppo, if you recall, and that was against other opposition forces, albeit Islamist extremists. Let's turn to the domestic front, and the narrative on Mr. Soleimani is more or less limited to his role in Iran-Iraq war, since the Iranian regime relies heavily on its coercive forces for its uh, survival at this point in history. Is it possible to be a key figure in the most powerful coercive arm of the regime, 
IE, the Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guards, and not be accountable for the actions such as quashing the 2009 protest movement, the 2017 protest, 2017-2018 protest, and the protest sparked by a rise in the petrol prices in November 2019. I agree. I don't think uh, you can be a member of Revolutionary Guards and not be responsible for the, all the actions of the organization. But for some reason, some Iranians do not have such a notion in their mind. And because Soleimani usually avoided taking positions about factional politics in Iran or about the ongoing issues in uh, domestic politics, I think that also has helped this kind of notion that Soleimani can be separated from the other actions of IRGC. I think the other actions, that other reason that some of these um, observers, I know some people who went to prison during the 2009 and are supporters of Soleimani, it's because they think uh, this kind of actions by Soleimani is necessary for, for expansion of Iran's power in the regime, regardless of who is in power in Tehran. Also, I want to add this comment about the fact that IRGC was involved in the repression of 2009, and this really damaged the credibility of the regime and also the security apparatus, including the IRGC. The Revolutionary Guards started an intentional campaign for repairing their image, and part of this was to promote a nationalist discourse that depicts the Revolutionary Guards as the guardian of Iran's national security. So Qasem Soleimani was a key figure in this campaign. He had his own media team and he himself also promoted his image as this hero in the battlefield. And I think to a certain extent, they were successful in promoting Soleimani as this national figure, as this patriotic figure that is a guardian of the entirety of Iran and as a promoter of Iran's uh, influence in the region. Mansour Farhang, I must say, we don't know much about Asim Soleimani. We look at the biographies offered in the state-run media and in the state-run newspapers. You don't find much. He remains somewhat of an enigmatic figure. What can you add to Soleimani's accountability vis-a-vis his role in the domestic front inside Iran? You see, Iran is a totalitarian theocracy. And they believe, like other totalitarian regimes, that end justify the means. We have to understand nobody is accountable in Iran. Who is accountable? Over 15,000 people have been executed in Iran. Iranian women are in jail because they're opposed to mandatory bailing. Uh, is there anybody accountable explaining it? So the accountability of the Iranian regime can be compared with accountability of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, or Hafez Assad in Syria, or Stalin in the uh, Soviet Union. So the idea of accountability in totalitarian theocracy is theoretical and academic you know, a discussion that has no relevance to reality. So we have to consider that, and Soleimani, there is no question that he was appointed by the supreme leader. So the question of accountability in totalitarian regimes is really non-existent.
That is Mansour Farhang speaking with Shahram Agamir about the recent military escalations between Iran and the U.S. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Large crowds participated in the state-sponsored funeral processions for General Soleimani. It was an elaborate uh, event planned well by the state. Official sources and the state-run media estimated the crowd size to be in millions, as they claim. Given the anti-government protests in November, how do you explain such large number of participants? I know it's a difficult question uh, to ask when you don't have free media and free press in Iran to sort of measure public opinion or assess public opinion on this matter. But is it fair to say that the reason to take part in these processions was not the same for everyone and perhaps the people had different reasons to be there? So I think Iran has a pluralistic society first, so not everyone thinks the same. It's true, we both had anti-government protests and then we had Soleimani's funeral that the participation was massive. Islamic Republic has a degree of popularity. It, it has a social base for different reasons. Part of it is ideological, part of it is because uh, the Islamic Republic is providing to the part of their supporters. And people had different reasons to participate. A big part of it has to do with the image of Soleimani as a nationalistic figure inside Iran. The discussions, for example, we had about his negative influence in Iraq and Syria. These things cannot be discussed inside Iran. Critical discussions of Iranian foreign policy in, inside Iran is extremely difficult, is as difficult as criticizing Iran's supreme leader. Um, these discussions exist on internet, but you wouldn't see it in newspapers or in the parliament and uh, in more open public forums in Iran. And I think a lot of people were uh, felt threatened by the aggressive act of assassination of Soleimani. They saw it as an act of aggression against Iran as a whole, not necessarily uh, as a regime. They didn't see it just as part of these people, as a confrontation between the Islamic Republic as the U.S. They saw it as an act of aggression of the United States against Iran. And Perhaps even Donald Trump's comments about hitting Iran's cultural side corroborated this notion that Trump's problem is not with the Islamic Republic, it's with Iranian people. So a lot of people participated. We can't say for sure why they all participated. A lot of them were supporters of the Islamic Republic. A lot of them were mourning General Soleimani as uh, how they saw him as a protector of Iran's national security. Many of them perhaps felt Iran is threatened and they wanted to show their support for the government, for the country, or oppose U.S. Uh, imperialist policies in the region. And this did have important consequences for, I think, kind of overshadowing protests that had happened 
in December that I can speak about now or can uh, wait later? Yeah, let's 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 come back to that. But I would like to um, ask you to elaborate and give us a little more on what you said about the, the base of support for the regime in Iran. I know it's difficult to measure, but in your estimation, what can we say about that? How big of a support is it? One way to say it is there are elections in Iran. There are not a free and fair elections. They're competitive within the realm of competitions that happen between the different factions between the Islamic Republic. And by the way, I should say, no, I do not completely agree with uh, describing Iran as a totalitarian state, but I don't want to also derail derail our discussion. Sure. You do not see this kind of factionalism in totalitarian state. Iran has some similarities with totalitarian systems, but Iran also has some similarities with authoritarian systems. That these are still not democratic systems, but there is some sort of limited political pluralism, some difference of opinion bef- between different factions uh, inside the regime that, for example, you do not see such thing under Stalin or under Mao during the Cultural Revolution. But in any case, there have been these hardliner candidates that stood in the elections, and they got millions of votes. For example, Ibrahim Raisi got about 16 millions of votes. That could be some estimation about the, the popular base of the regime. Again, we cannot also be sure that these votes are correctly counted, they could have added to it. But I think this is one indicator for us to, to see how much support uh, the regime has. I think in, in a free election that can also draw people when people see they have actual other preferences, they might choose other options. But in the current situation with the limited options that we have for estimating the public opinion, I think that's something we can say. Uh, what you're arguing is, if I, I'm understanding yeah. you correctly, regime enjoys probably no more than 15 to 20 percent uh, support within the population. Is that a fair an assessment of what you're saying? Well, I didn't think, perhaps, <laughs> yeah, yeah. About That's... the persons, I have to look at the numbers again. Right, because 60 million, I'm just trying to put it in a context, yes. you know, in, yes. in terms of the yes. population. Right. And, okay. And Mansoor Farhang, would you like to add to that? Yes. First of all, if the Iranian regime has popular support, then it should feel comfortable to give permission to the dissidents, to its critics and opponents, to have a public gathering of the vote. It should at least permit their critics and their opponents to have a newspaper or a radio station or television of their own. They absolutely refuse to do that. Moreover, constitutionally, the Iranian society is divided between insiders and outsiders. And even the so-called elections, these are in sometimes competitive within the regime, but not democratic at all. Second, even if a regime is popular, even if it has 20%, 50%, 60%, it has popularity, that popularity is not the basis of judging the legitimacy or the humanity of its policies. Many dictators throughout the world have had popular support. I'm reading a book, it's called How to Be a Dictator, the Count of Personality in 20th Century, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, they had some popular support. There is no question about it. But do we judge them on the basis of their popular support or we judge them or Mao Zedong or we judge them on the basis of what they did to them? Over 20 million people were killed during the so-called Cultural Revolution. 
and millions and millions of people died and suffered in concentration camps or in labor camps under Stalin and on and on. So a regime in, in Iran, it's to, there are 14 million people living in Tehran. It's possible, the people who work for government and schools and the, to have a demonstration and also perhaps significant number of people in Iran who oppose the regime still fear a war as a result of assassination of Soleimani perhaps motivated them to participate in the protest movement, which this funeral procession was also a protest movement. And I would say the Iranian regime is, in terms of its organization, in terms of its ability to maintain and manage a totalitarian system, is not like the Soviet Union or like China. It's, it's chaotic. And yet, in terms of ideology, in terms of its relationship to critics, in terms of its belief in absolute correctness of what they do, dividing the world between believers and non-believers, and whatever you do to the non-believers is perfectly legitimate, is exactly the, now, to the extent to which they're able to carry out in the society, it's not easy because of the nature of the Iranian society and also the inexperience and chaotic character of the of the clerical rulers. So this popularity business, we shouldn't really put focus in a closed society. How can we talk about the popularity of government? It's clear that many authoritarian states still have some base of support. It's just a matter of are we able to quantify that? And that's a very difficult thing to do. Just to uh, continue with this discussion, in 2017 and 2019 protests in Iran, we heard slogans against Iran's military and financial support for its allies in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. And people were arguing that these supports happen while the population inside the country is experiencing severe economic hardship. Given that resentment, how do people actually in Iran, decouple the regime's regional policies from Qasem Soleimani's role as a key implementer of those policies? I think this is, this is kind of a difficult question to answer, but I would like to pose it to you. Mansoor Fahang, would you like to... If we want to understand the influence of the regime in the region, there is, first of all, the fact that Shi'i groups in Sunni-dominated states have been oppressed, marginalized, and discriminated against that gives Iran's soft power effectiveness in influencing them. However, the real understanding of this policy has to come from the amount of money Iran has spent in the region. The leader of the Hezbollah said openly and clearly that we receive our money and arms and salaries from the Iranian government. In other words, the Shi'is of southern Lebanon completely depend on Iran in order to continue the economic situation, the military position, and the arm, and, and so forth. That's exactly why the sanctions against Iran have created serious problems with respect to Iran's ability to support these groups. So we cannot reduce it. That soft power of Iran has to be recognized as part of the factor. During Ahmadinejad, eight years, Iran made over $750 billion in oil revenues, more than what Iran had gained in the previous 30 years. What happened to this money? What happened to this money? Because poverty in Iran expanded, class division deepened, 
and some people became extremely rich and a good part of the money was also spent in the region as a tool of exporting the revolution and challenging American and regional powers. I think we both, I mean, we all analysts, we sit down and said the Iranian people want this, Iranian people want that. And it's just there is not one Iranian people. I think there are Iranian people who oppose Soleimani's policies. There are Iranian people who are supporters of the regime and like Soleimani. And there are Iranian people who don't like Islamic Republic, but still like Soleimani because they like Iran's influence in the region. Or they just have nationalist uh, sentiments about Soleimani as a protector of the Iran's national security. I mean, one example is uh, the Shirza Hedi, who was Iran's foreign minister before the revolution. And he also praised very highly, praised Soleimani very highly. I think this part is because some of some of policies of the Islamic Republic is promoting in the region is similar to Pahlavi's policy. Yes, the, the opposition to the United States is absolutely different, but the fact that Iran wants influence in Iraq, Iran wants influence in Lebanon, these are similarities. So, like, Shah, for example, promoted Amal movement in Lebanon. After that, Iran, uh, Islamic Republic switched this to Hezbollah. The difference is that Pahlavi monarchy, in terms of ideology, did not have much in common with Ahmad. Yes, probably they, they paid them money and other, other sort of support. Iran gives these groups money, but it's not just a money alliance. It's not just an economic alliance. Iran also makes these ideological alliances with this group. Hezbollah receives Iranian money, but they also have ideological similarity with the Islamic Republic. So I think there are different kind of uh, ideas and interests that drive some of the Iranians' support for Soleimani. And the big part of it, as I mentioned, is that the, there is not open discussions, open critical discussions about Iran's foreign policy in the region. For example, in the U.S., it's a democratic society. We have now a long tradition of critical uh, engagement and critical assessment of American foreign policy. People like Noam Chomsky have contributed to this tradition. We do not have that tradition as much, neither before the revolution, neither after a revolution. And part of it is because the, there's a, the, the, the government does not give space to it. That another part, I think, is some something that I think Iranian intellectuals are responsible for. They haven't really paid as much attention to that matter. And another issue is that the public discourse in Iran is so polarized around the Islamic Republic that either people just take positions against the Islamic Republic, they side with the United States, or just side with the Islamic Republic against the United States. Positions that, for example, Mr. Farhang takes that at the same time criticizes both the United States and the Islamic Republic, these positions uh, I think are kind of much weaker in Iranians' public discourse in Iran, and we need a lot more discussions uh, like that. Let's shift gears and talk about the impact of recent escalation of tensions between the two countries on the civil society and growing protests in Iran. And we can uh, name a few industrial actions by the workers, teachers' protests, student protests, and other forms of collective actions, uh, which had been um, gaining momentum prior to the recent escalation of tension in the U.S.-Iran relations. How do you see the impact on those movements, if you like, or collective actions in Iran, uh, Ali Kadivar? I mean, so far we can say that this escalation overshadowed the protests that happened in December. 
understand they had, we had massive protests and even more important than the protests was government's violent repression of the protests. We do not know exactly how many people were killed, but I think the numbers goes between over 300 to over 1,000. Reuters said 1,500, uh, Amnesty International had over 300, and then Kalame, this oppositional website, had its number between 400 and 600. So many people, for sure, were killed. And I think after the government shut down internet when they were putting down protests, after the internet came back and people were finding out about uh, people that were killed during the protest, uh, there were questions for the government: How many people were killed? Why, why did you, why did you use so much violence? And I think the regime was in trouble. They had to answer. They didn't have a good answer. They were trying to make up for uh, this violent reaction. First, they said these are thugs, but then uh, Supreme Leader agreed that some of the protesters that were killed can be designated as martyrs. Uh, look at the day before Soleimani's assassination. General Salami, the commander of the IRGC, had gone to the city of Mashar that saw one of the bloodiest reactions from the regime to give money and try to appease the family of the victims. There was a letter signed by 100 principalists or conservative figures to Mr. Khamenei, criticizing the, the manner by which the country had been run. And they warned him that if the Islamic Republic continues in this style, it's going to be on the way of its demise and decline. Well, this escalation episode happened and completely changed the discussion in Iran. I think the Revolutionary Guards prestige that was damaged, they were able to, I think Trump just kind of repaired that image for them. They came out again as these defenders of Iran's national security. Soleimani's assassinations heightened uh, nationalist sentiments in Iran. And then we had the massive funeral. Now we discussed that people came out for different reasons, but because there are not uh, legitimate venues for people to organize and they say for themselves what they think, the government easily then uh, capitalized on the funeral. They would say these are people that came out for us, they came out for the Islamic Republic, they came out for the regime. They are going to use this for further repression, to suppress even dissidents within the regime. Islamic Republic is a regime that has emerged under severe external pressures. They had the Iran-Iraq war, and this kind of external threat feeds into the Islamic Republic. It brings together the elite, the elite that otherwise is our each other's throat. They have been together since the sanctions have been imposed on Iran. We saw open rivalries and criticism between Rouhani and Revolutionary Guards before the sanctions. You probably remember the incident that Rouhani criticized Revolutionary Guards for writing death to Israel uh, in Hebrew on a missile that they were testing. In a speech, Rouhani criticized them. At this point, if I take out Rouhani's name and Revolutionary Guard's name and you put their statements in front of you, you wouldn't know if Rouhani said this or a Revolutionary Guard commander said it. In the repression of the December protest, Rouhani's positions were exactly similar to Khamenei's position. So this kind of external threat brings together Iranian elite in Islamic Republic. It has overshadowed the protests. It uh, derailed the attention from regime's violence towards the protesters. And I think it was a beautiful gift to Islamic Republic that was in big trouble before Soleimani's assassination. 
change the narrative and the regime and revolutionary guards were able to again uh, reproject their picture as this nationalistic forces and figures that stand for Iran against the, against the aggressions of an imperialist force such as the United States. So the Iranian regime has not announced the number of people killed in the recent protests. We have no idea of what is happening to thousands of people who were arrested and are detained. Yeah. So the rising tension in U.S.-Iran relations seems to have provided the perfect opportunity for the regime in Tehran, if, and if I may add, the regime in Baghdad, to use the pretext of a threat to national security to divert the attention from anti-government protesters and their demands. Let's again conceptualize the problem in the sense that the Iranian regime, but its very nature, needs enemy. And it's not limited to the Iranian regime. Autophagic or totalitarian regimes always need enemy in order to justify their action. They also see their critics as enemy. They don't see the critics as rivals. And in this sense, there is no difference between Shah's regime and the Islamic Republic. When you read the answer to history, Shah's book about his career, and you read Khomeini's book, they're vastly different in every sense of the word, except in two areas. They're absolutely identical. One, whatever happens that, that doesn't please them is the conspiracy of foreigners, plan of foreigners, to anybody who disagrees with them is either a stupid or a foreign agent. Absolutely identical, which really here, we have to dig into our political culture to see this is exactly the same thing that, for example, the two-day party did in, in Iran. So this is a reality. Therefore, if the if Iranian regime is going to see the people who question it as enemies of the state, Anything is justified to suppress and to eliminate the enemy. Whether 200 or 300 or 1,500 people have been killed, over 7,000 people have been arrested in recent demonstrations. And also, we have to understand that the Iranian regime, unlike the Shah regime, has a coercive apparatus, has an intelligence apparatus whose members remain committed to the regime, both ideologically and in terms of economic benefits they get from it. This is not the way the police or the military officers under the Shah felt. It was not, the ideological dimension was not there, and their well, they did not see their well-being connected or dependent on the continuation of monarchy in Iran. So in that sense, the autocratic state or the totalitarian state in Iran has created an, an effective instrument of suppressing you know, dissidents, and in spite of that, what is happening in Iran, which is extremely hopeful, is women's movement. Women's movement in Iran, in spite of the pathological actions of the regime, is unprecedented in the history of Islamic movements. And today, some of the leading personalities, some of the leading analysts and activists are women. And this is really, a, a, in the post-revolutionary period, significantly also the generation that were born or small children at the time of the revolution. Remember that population of Iran has more than doubled but from 37 million to 82 million. And today, over 70% of the Iranian population are under four years old. So we are talking about a completely new society that to some extent is really strange and different 
from what we have been buying, the dissidents who left Iran 40 years ago or 39 years ago. It's really a, a, a situation that one has to be there in order to appreciate the feeling and sensibilities of the people who have to function and live or uh, take any kind of active position against the present regime. Uh, the state media in Iran claims that the missile attack on Enol Assad resulted in the death of 80 American military personnel and the injury of 200 others, while the U.S. government claims that there were no casualties. Taking what the state media in Iran is claiming with a pinch of salt, if you like, this reaction by the Iranian regime is more or less in line with how the ruling bloc in Iran has been approaching these moments of crises for the past three, three decades. That is, their attempt to diffuse tension when things get really heated. Going forward, what is the expectation of the Iranian regime? And what is the U.S. Trump administration foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran? I mean, predicting this kind of tense situation is difficult. I think Iran's overall policy at this point is just to wait to see if Trump will get elected or not in um, 2020. I think they're just trying to go over this period. Um, I'm not sure if they have some plan for if he gets reelected or not. I mean, Trump is also unpredictable. I think this the, the danger of war is now smaller than perhaps a week ago. But this is going to be a tense situation. We might see clashes between the, some of the militias in the region and uh, America or American allies. But the, I mean, the overall policy of the United States towards Iran is not changing. The Iran's policy towards U.S. is not changing. So we, we are going to see similar uh, similar event as we have seen since the uh, United States pulled out of the nuclear deal and put sanctions in Iran. I mean, any change in Iran and U.S. relations, I think, goes back for U.S. to reconsider and reevaluate not just its policy towards Iran, but its policy about the Middle East in general, which involve uh, U.S.-Israeli relations, U.S.-Saudi relations. What are the major issues for for the U.S. if I mean things like democracy or human rights is going are going to be ever a concern for the United States in the region or overall? To the world. I think those are big issues and it doesn't look like the big issues are going to be changing anytime soon. Iran's reaction is completely expected and this attack on American base in Iraq was calculated to be a symbolic act that it would satisfy the credibility and claims of the regime internally without provoking reaction by the United States. And it may well be that there was a, a channel, a hidden channel, between the two countries to actually create this understanding. The, the tweet diplomacy between Zarif and Trump really explains that. Zarif says, we are doing something as a response and we have legal right to do that, but that would be the end of it. And then nothing happens and Trump understands that then based on his own interest because neither side really wants war. Muhammad Ali Kadivar is an assistant professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College. Mansoor Farhang is professor emeritus of international relations at Bennington College. They spoke with Shahram Aghamir. For more analysis on Iran, please visit jadmagazine.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>